Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Listen to what the Lord says. So think of this in terms of, this is a prophecy that's looking out again. Remember, as we go through these prophecies, some of them are speaking of the immediate situation that's coming upon them. Some of the deliverance passages are speaking about the captivity that will come to a conclusion at the end of the 70 years. But some of the passages are speaking out into the distant future, a future that we haven't even arrived at yet in history. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ezekiel chapters 20 through 28. Now here's Pastor Brian. We're picking up in Ezekiel chapter 20. So if you want to turn there with me. And once again, we're going to cover a lot of ground and just as we've been doing, you know, kind of give a general picture of what's happening in each chapter and then look at some of the specifics that I think are things that that we need to consider. So, you know, once again in these chapters, we're going over the judgments that are coming and the reasons for the judgments that are coming. And these are things that are addressed many times over as you go through this prophecy. So we don't need to keep rehearsing over the same things that were happening, but there are these little spots where I think there's pertinent stuff that we do need to pause and consider that. So Ezekiel chapter 20 In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day, some of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord, and they sat in front of me. So back in the eighth chapter, Ezekiel gave a specific date, and now we're moving ahead in time. And the date here is 591 B.C., And the reason I bring that up is because that is five years before the destruction of Jerusalem. So remember how we talked about this siege of Nebuchadnezzar was a 20-year-long situation. It started in 606. That was the first invasion of the Babylonians. And the first captives were carried away in 606. And then the final destruction of the temple will come in 586. And so we see this a a long, drawn-out period of time where, I mean, throughout this whole time, basically what God is doing is he's speaking to the people through the prophets. Jeremiah, remember, is prophesying in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's prophesying here from Babylon. And he's telling them that the destruction can be averted if they will simply do things his way. And the crazy thing is we see the resistance, how they just continue to resist all the way through 
till the destruction comes. So a destruction comes, and I think we probably said this before, it's a destruction that never needed to take place. The remedy was really simple. God says, submit to Nebuchadnezzar, go to Babylon, I'm gonna give my land rest, I'll take care of you there, then I'll bring you back, and just do what I say, and it, it, it will be okay. But there was just this absolute resistance to that. And so we are now getting closer and closer to the end of everything. And by the time we, we get through, Jerusalem will then have been destroyed by the Babylonians. So it's the same situation. The elders come, they sit before Ezekiel here. Verse two, then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Have you come to inquire of me? As surely as I live, I will not let you inquire of me, declares the sovereign Lord. And so God says, because, because of their con- consistent refusal to repent, because of their holding on to their sin and their idolatry, God just says, I'm not, I'm not going to allow you to inquire of me. There's a couple of things here that I think are just of interest, and I want to point them out to you. In verse five, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I chose Israel, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand, I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey and most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not rid themselves of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So one thing that is interesting in these passages, what you see that I don't know has really ever come out specifically uh, through any of the other prophets there's references to the idolatry of Israel while they were in Egypt. And I think the tendency is to think that, you know, during that 400-year period of time in Egypt, that the Israelites were this holy people, this sanctified people, this people that were, you know, loving the God of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. And yet from the things that Ezekiel says, it appears that they had fully Embrace the idolatry that was in Egypt. And that then sort of explains the situation once they come out of Egypt. Remember, on their way to the promised land, they have a 40-year detour, and every adult that left Egypt dies in the wilderness before they ever can reach the promised land. So it just kind of gives us insight into the fact that even though they were led out of Egypt by the Lord and all of those amazing miraculous signs and things, they were led out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. And that was perpetuated. So here we are in Ezekiel's day, hundreds of years later, 
And he's saying that all of this idolatry and everything is rooted back in the idolatry that you went into back when you were in Egypt. So kind of a fascinating thing. But the other thing that I think is interesting, notice how the Lord refers to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. And he says, I had searched out for them a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And then over in uh, verse 15, it says the same thing, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. Two things, the land flowing with milk and honey, just so we're clear about that. That's a reference to a land that's full of pastures where you're going to have your cattle grazing and so they're going to be filled up and they're going to produce plenty of milk. And the honey would be a reference to the fruitfulness of the land and of course the bees and the you know the pollen and the and the flowers and and all of that where they would have plenty of opportunity to produce. So it's it's a land of um, agricultural productivity. But it's interesting that the Lord refers to it as the most beautiful of all lands. And that's a little bit of a mystery. You know, if you've been to Israel, I mean we love Israel, but I think if it was if Israel wasn't historically what it is, if it wasn't the, you know, the the place of the God of Jacob and the place where the Lord Jesus came, if you if you extract all of that out of it, it's just kind of like anywhere else. You know, there, there, there's nothing extraordinary about it, at least from my point of view, that would cause why why does God say this, that it's the most beautiful of all lands? Well, we can speculate. Some people believe that the Garden of Eden was actually located there at one time. Now, we don't know if that's the case, uh, but some people believe that it is. And that would kind of explain why God is saying that this is a special piece of land. Uh, but it, that, can't, that can't be proven one way or the other. You know, we have a description of the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis But then we have a flood that comes and wipes out the entire topography of the world. And the new world that emerges from the flood is not the same world that went went into the flood. So even even the the geographical borders and and markers and all of that were, were altered during the time of the flood. And when we reread about the flood and then post-flood world, we, we talk about places like Mesopotamia and the Tigris River and those things. Those were just carried over by the, the descendants of Noah. Those names from the, from the ancient world were just brought into the new world and these rivers were named rivers that were in the ancient world. And we know where they're located, but we don't know where the ancient ones, the, uh, the pre-Diluvian, that's the pre-flood world, we don't know exactly where they existed. And so, you know, the assumption is that the Garden of Eden was over in the Fertile Crescent region, the Mesopotamian Valley. But again, that's guessing. So, the most beautiful of lands. The second reason, and maybe this is actually more the reason, it's because it's the land where God himself would put his foot and where he would be born into this world and where he would live and he would labor and he would serve and he would suffer and he would die and he would rise again. 
And so maybe it's from that future perspective that God has his eye on this land because this is the place where all of this will transpire. So again, chapter 20 is just going into all kinds of detail about the reasons that the judgment are going to come. And verse 32, jump over to verse 32. And it says, so this is kind of the the gist of it. This is where the people were at. Verse 32, you say, we want to be like the nations, like the peoples of the world who serve wood and stone. (laughs) Can you believe that? I mean, you know, they're serving the true God, the living God, they're serving, but, but this God is invisible, but yet he's very real, he's very present, he's been very active on their behalf throughout their entire history, but they want to be like the other nations. They want stone images, they want wood images, they, they just don't like feeling like they're out of touch with everybody else. So this, this is what they're longing for. And yet, listen to what God says. He says, but what you have in mind will never happen. God's just saying that. You know, and this is where God is just taking uh, his place of ownership over them. You know, God purchased them out of Egypt. And so he's saying, basically, you belong to me, and I know this is what you want, but this is never going to happen. I'm never going to let you go in the direction of your heart's desire because, of course, God knows that that's their destruction. If he lets them go the way they want to go, it will be their demise, totally. So the Lord is not going to allow that. And then he says this. He says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will reign over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. So God declares, I am going to reign over you. In in a sense, you could put it, I'm gonna reign over you one way or the other. You're either gonna submit to me and it's gonna be pleasant, or you're gonna resist me and it's gonna be not too fun. And of course, that is what it was, right? But now this passage is so interesting as it goes on. Listen to what the Lord says. So this is... Think of this in terms of, this is a prophecy that's looking out again. Remember, as we go through these prophecies, some of them are speaking of the immediate situation that's coming upon them. Uh, Some of the deliverance passages are speaking about the captivity that will come to a conclusion at the end of the 70 years. But some of the passages are speaking out into the distant future, a future that we haven't even arrived at yet in history. And so I think this passage takes us out to the present time, maybe even a little bit in the past. I'll mention that in just a second. But notice what it says. He says, um, he says, I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered. So, so this could be a reference. Remember, the northern kingdom has already been scattered to Assyria Now, the southern kingdom is going to be scattered to Babylon. It could be just those two countries, or it could be speaking of the larger scattering that would take place at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, where the Jewish nation was dispersed throughout the whole world. 
But also, let's not forget that when the Babylonian captivity ended and the nation was free to return to the land, a very small number of them actually returned. So the, the majority of people stayed, they stayed in Persia, they stayed in Babylon, they immigrated to different places around the world. So there's coming a time though when the Lord's gonna bring them from the nations where they have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you into the wilderness of the nations and there face to face I will execute judgment upon you. As I judged your ancestors in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares the sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who revolt and rebel against me Although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So this idea of them passing under this rod, it's a reference to the, it's a disciplinary thing. And so God, he says, he's gonna bring them into a judgment and he's gonna purge the rebels from among them. Now this, some people have looked at this passage here and thought that they've seen in it glimpses of the Holocaust. That it was through this, this judgment that occurred that God brought them out of these lands that they were scattered into. And you would know if you have studied a little bit of the history, you know that the Second World War and specifically the Holocaust really paved the way for the birth of the, of the state of Israel. So the Second World War ended in 1945 and the state of Israel was born in 1948. And so all throughout the, you know, the end of the war period and, and of course even before the war where the Jews were trying to find places of refuge and, and so forth, eventually many of them would end up in the land and so it was like the fires of the Holocaust. People see this passage as a reference to that. Maybe there's something to that. I think this is probably referring, though, to something that's still ahead. Because in Zechariah's prophecy, it speaks about, you know, Jerusalem being intact again, people living in, this, living in the city, life going on as usual. And then there's this, this judgment that comes. There's these armies that come against Jerusalem, and it says two-thirds of the people will perish and one-third will be refined. So it's almost the same kind of language that's being used here. So I think that this is probably referring to that same thing that is a future event from now. But either way, God is just saying, like, I, I am going to rule over you and I'm going to purge the rebels out of you myself. Now, the um, remainder of the chapter just goes on to speak more about the judgment and ultimately the, the restoration that God will bring to the people. But then chapter 21, in chapter 21, we have references to Babylon being God's sword of judgment. And the Lord, again, telling them, you know, it's not going to be like 
the false prophets are saying Babylon is going to come. Babylon is going to deal the death blow to the nation. But then the passage that we want to look at here in 21 is found in verse 25. And this is really fascinating. So this is addressed now. So now we're at the time, just getting close right to the time of the end. So 586. And this is a reverence to Zedekiah. Now we've talked about Zedekiah already. Remember, he was the final king. He was the one who tried to escape, went through the hole in the wall, was captured. His sons were murdered before his eyes. His eyes were put out. He was taken, taken blinded to Babylon, and he died there in the captivity. So this is referring to him. And listen to what it says. Verse 25 says, you profane and wicked prince of Israel whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax. This is what the sovereign Lord says. So here it is. Take off the turban, remove the crown. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. The Lord is speaking And then he says this, the crown will not be restored until he to whom it rightfully belongs shall come. To him I will give it. So God is pronouncing this judgment on now the nation of Judah. And basically Zedekiah is the last king. There will be no more kings. So when it refers to the turban, and the crown, it's, the turban is probably a reference to the priest because the priest wore the turbans. Of course, the king uh, wore the crown. And so what God is declaring is that the whole system is going to come to an end. And it does. With the destruction of the temple, the priests are finished. I mean, that was their whole purpose, right? To serve the Lord in the temple. Now, when the people return to the land under... Zerubbabel, the priesthood is reestablished. And Joshua, the high priest, is there with Zerubbabel, and they are co-laboring in the, the restoration of the temple. And we know from, even into the New Testament, we know that the priesthood goes on, continues to exist. We know, of course, at the time of Jesus, there are these high priests. But from the time of Zedekiah to this very day, there has never been a king in Israel. There's never been a king. Now, let me clarify. There's never been a king that was a Davidic king. And now, let's join Pastor Brian and Cheryl in the studio as they share about this month's resource. So, Brian, we're offering a book from our good friend, Charlie Campbell. Yes, Charlie Campbell is the director of Always Be Ready, which is an apologetics ministry and One website. we recommend a lot. Yeah, we recommend it a lot. And this is a one-minute answer to skeptics. Now, Charlie has done this book, and this is like a revised version answering 50 of the top objections and questions 
kind of current things. You know, things change over time. There are different arguments and things. And what I like about this book is it's it's an updated current addressing a lot of the things that people are kind of throwing out there today as their objections to Christianity. And some of the topics that Charlie covers in this is why doesn't God just appear to us in a public setting and prove he exists? Or the New Testament authors, did they steal details of Jesus' life story from other ancient religions? This is what some skeptics say. Or that the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide? Or that the Bible condones slavery? So these are real issues in our society today, and Charlie tells you a biblical answer for these things, and it's great. So great little one-minute answer to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell. That's our offer for this month. Again, this month's resource is a book titled One-Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell. You can order the book One-Minute Answers to Skeptics by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book, The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Brian Broderson. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ezekiel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.